It's my privilege to be able to open the Word of God with you this morning. I would love it if you would open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11 in just a little bit. So 2 Corinthians, verses 5 through 11. As we prepare to look at this text, um, I was thinking of another one that you're probably familiar with, one of the more famous stories of the Bible, of the, the story of the prodigal son. And if you remember the story of the prodigal son, it's a story of a son who tells his father, in essence, um, I wish you were dead. That's culturally, that's basically what he said. Can you give me half the inheritance? And he leaves and he squanders his, um, his inheritance. And he, he wakes up in the pen um, with a bunch of pigs eating pig slop. And he realizes, wow, how fall, far I have fallen. But what if, let's just reimagine this story a little bit. Because in the actual story, the, the prodigal son, as we call him, he realizes that he is lost and he has a sorrow at his sin. And he goes back to the father and he doesn't ask the father to restore him as a son. He asks the father, can I, just, can I be a servant? Can I just be one of your servants? And, and the father embraces him and he restores him and he has a feast for him and he puts a, a robe on him and he celebrates him. That's what happens in the real story. But what if... What if the son, after squandering his inheritance, had gone back to the father and said, hey, dad, could you give me some more dough? Because I've run out of money. <laughs> there wasn't a heart of repentance. There wasn't a heart of sorrow. There wasn't a recognition of where he was at. He just wanted to continue in his lifestyle. And although maybe, maybe we're not told, I actually think there's, there's a hint in the story of the answer to that. Because when the, when the father is talking to the older brother, who doesn't want to forgive the, the prodigal son. He doesn't want to celebrate the return of this son. Um, he says, all I have is yours. So there wasn't actually this sort of thing, well, we're going to resplit the inheritance. There was still sort of a consequence for the prodigal son's blowing his inheritance and leaving the, leaving the father. I, I don't think that the father would have gone and given him more money and given him more of an inheritance. But the father's heart in the, in the story, right, of of longing for his son's return, waiting for him with open arms and celebrating his return represents God's love and God's posture towards us. But the, the prodigal son had to get to this place where he recognized his, his wretched state. He recognized his, his sin and he had a genuine sorrow that comes with repentance. So relating this to 2 Corinthians, I, I want to again kind of map out where we've been with 2 Corinthians. So remember that the Corinthian church is a church founded by Paul. Um, and this is not a church he just founded and, and went on to the next time. He spent a year and a half here. So he built deep relationships with, these church, with this church. But he founds this church, and it's a church um, that's really uh, Pastor Jay um, used the phrase, like, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It's probably a pretty accurate assessment of what the city of Corinth was like. Um, part of it was it was a, it was a port city. And so a um, couple of things about being a port city kind of went both directions. So there, was, there were ships. If, if you didn't do well in geography class and you ignored your geography teacher the whole time, you can ignore me here for just a second. Um, again, but it was between the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea. And it was a small little isthmus of land. And so ships would come, and they would lit literally put wheels on the ships and roll them across this little isthmus of land and sail out the other end. They did that because if you went around Greece, there were a lot, there's a lot of ships at the bottom 
um, of the ocean of the Mediterranean Sea there because it was very rocky, very dangerous sailing. And so they, they went across that line. So it made it a port city for anything going from east to west and west to east. But it also, if you can imagine Greece in your mind, it's okay if you can't, I'll forgive you. Just don't tell me. I'll pretend like you do. Um, but if you can imagine Greece in your mind, it's all, again, narrow isthmus of land, northern Greece and southern Greece, everything goes through Corinth. So everything's going through Corinth. And when everything's going through Corinth, all kinds of different practices and things, it's just kind of a city where it's a mishmash of all these different religions and all these different practices mashed together. And Paul founds a church here, and it's primarily a Gentile church. And we know from the letter of 1 Corinthians, there were a lot of things that were a mess in this church. They, they, they looked more like their community, more like their culture than they ought. And Paul had to address many issues. One of the issues that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians in chapter 5 was a man who was living with his stepmother. So he was living with his stepmother, and Paul's like, even among the Gentiles, this is a shameful thing. And he says, I've already judged this person. They need to be removed from your midst. So this is a person who is not repentant. Now, there are some hints, um, just if you study the context of the ancient world, of, of understanding some things perhaps that are going on beneath the surface, that this was a practice, living with your, your uh, stepmother, was a practice that was sometimes done by the, the wealthy and by the, the rich because it was a way of keeping the money in the family, not having to split up the inheritance. So it's very likely that this person um, who is uh, staying with his, his stepmother is a wealthy, influential person. And if you also recall, in the context of the Corinthian church, um, the people of power and influence were kind of using that power and influence. We're going to celebrate communion today. But one of the issues that Paul addresses is that the wealthy and the rich people in, their, in communion would eat, and there would be nothing left for the poor people. That we're, we're emphasizing, here's the wealthy people, the influential people. Here are the poor people, the people that don't matter quite so much. That was happening in communion, and Paul's correcting this. So moving forward with this, in earlier in 2 Corinthians, Paul is referencing this. He had to take this detour, and he calls it a painful visit, in which he, has, he is having to kind of pull the church into dealing with some issue. And it could be this same issue. I don't know for sure. We can't know for sure, really. But it could be the same issue, that perhaps this person was a person of some wealth, this person who had been um, staying with his stepmother, with some wealth and some influence. And he, Paul says, you need to remove him from the church. And he's like, hey, he provides a lot of money to the church, or maybe the church meets at his house, or this person's kind of an important person. Are we just going to really kick him out? And perhaps this person led a bit of a revolt against Paul. Well, he's like, well, we don't have to listen to this guy. Who's he? So Paul is forced to come back to Corinth, whether it's this person or another situation. It's clearly this situation for which he comes back. It's clearly a rejection of Paul's authority. He's told them to do something. They refuse to do it. So he comes back and he he has to kind of lead the church into doing what they ought to do. And then he, he writes this letter of tears that he calls it. So there's all this pain associated with something in the Corinthian church. It could be the same situation. It might not be. And so that leads us into our text this morning. Paul has, is, has, is trying to reconcile this Corinthian church. There's already been some progress. Uh, he sent Titus 
um, to go see them. They received him. Now he's writing this letter as trying to heal and bring this church back to himself. But he's also writing for them to receive this person who has sinned, receive this person who now has great sorrow at his sin, and receive him back and forgive him. So in, this story, in, this, in our text this morning, Paul is trying to wrap up this rather difficult situation. He seeks the restoration of the member of, a Corinthian, of the Corinthian church who has sinned against him in some way. There's been a rejection of Paul and probably an attempt to get other people to do the same. And the punishment that has been inflicted, Paul says, is enough. The punishment is enough. It is time for forgiveness. It's time for healing It's time for reconciliation. The discipline was necessary, but now the time is come for healing. I'd love to pray for us as we look at this text together. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that your word is a light unto our feet and a a steady place that we can stand. Um, Father, as Christians always um, have, we live in tumultuous times. We live in times of chaos and times of difficulty and times where it's hard to know where to stand. But thank you for giving us your word as a place to stand. Um, Father, thank you that you haven't left us alone, that you've given us your spirit and we need the wisdom of your spirit to guide us as we seek to understand this passage and how to apply it. Uh, Father, I, I thank you for the instructions here in this passage. I pray that you'll guide us as we study it this morning. Um, Father, I think that your spirit is with us and we pray in the name of Jesus and in the power of the spirit. Amen. All right, so open your Bibles, if you haven't already. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, Paul says, but in some measure, and not to put it too severely, um, but to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. And anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So Paul begins this section with if anyone has caused pain, It's not cause it to me alone, but to the whole church. Um, And he's intentionally, and you know, as as somebody who's studying the Bible, somebody who's really curious about what's going on, I would love it if Paul were to name this person. Like this person, here's his name, here's what he did, and this is why we're punishing him, and now he's to be forgiven. But he's actually some he's intentionally not doing that. He's using generic language if anyone has caused pain. Everybody in the room knows what he's talking about. Everyone in the room knows who he's referring to. They know the situation that he's talking about. But Paul's here approaching it with a posture of gentleness and restoration and forgiveness. So he's speaking speaking of it in vague terms. So if anyone has caused pain. But he's also trying to make the argument here that even though, whatever the, the situation is, even though this person has gone after me, it wasn't just a sin against me. It was a sin against the whole church. He has brought pain and division to the, the whole church. It's, it's to you also. So he's the primary target, but there's also a, an, uh, rep, re, repercussions on the whole church. Now, later in the letter, Paul's going to speak of outside agitators. 
And he calls them, I think, rather sarcastically super apostles um, who are causing trouble and strife and they're stacking their resumes up against Paul and they're saying Paul's really not that impressive. But that's not who he's talking about here because those are people outside this church who are stirring things up. It's very clear in this passage that he's referring to people within the church or to someone within the church. This is somebody with whom they... Communities in this context are pretty tight-knit. So this is somebody that they've had deep relationships with, and they've, they've had a difficult time moving through this process of what we would call church discipline. It's not been easy. Paul's really had to kind of pull them along. Um, so they've had a difficult time uh, moving through this. But now Paul is, is saying, no, this, this has been dealt with, and now the time is for comfort. He has been removed, and now his time for him to be restored. So there's all kinds of things we don't know about this passage, um, or about this person, or about the situation. We can kind of try to piece it together. But two things that we do know. So first, Paul is referencing a situation in the Corinthian church, a member of the Corinthian church, who has brought him pain and pain um, within the church. He's been put under church discipline and removed from church fellowship. That's clear in the passage, so we can know that. And secondly, um, the primary target of this offender's uh, sinful behavior was Paul himself. This person came after Paul. This is all flowing out of Paul explaining his painful visit and his letter of tears and why he had to come back and why he didn't come back after that, that he didn't want to cause him further pain. So this is still flowing from that. This is a person who had sinned against Paul. Um, He had grieved the community at large. The pain associated with this sin is real. It led to damaged relationships in a fractured community because sin brings pain. I want to pause here and just kind of sit with that for a second. Um, Think about, in Paul's ministry, the amount of energy and the amount of time, um, the amount of having to change his plans that went into this situation, whatever it was. Um, Paul left where he was to come back for a quick visit to the Corinthian church. Paul called on Titus to leave where he was to go deal with this situation. Think of the emotional energy that Paul, this, this letter, 2 Corinthians, is a raw letter where Paul is writing from a place of, of pain and hurt um, and deep care for the Corinthian church. But there's really been a struggle here. So the emotional energy poured into this. There, there, there's an effect that this sin is, has taken. Paul could have spent more time planting churches in another city. Paul could have spent more time writing letters and to instruct other believers in other places, but he's had to pour in a lot to deal with this issue. If you'll indulge me, um, I'm kind of a nerd, so I like things like Lord of the Rings. Um, and if you're one of those people who have only seen the movie and not the book, this is in the movie. Don't tell me that you're one of those people who only watches the movie, but it's, this is in the movie as well as the book. But there's a point in the, the third book where Gandalf is, is going into battle and as he's going into to battle, one of the hobbits comes up and tells him that, that this, the steward of Gondor, whose name is Denethor, is, going, is about to burn his own son alive. And Gandalf has to leave the battle to go save this man's life and deal with this situation. While that happens, then the, 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 the king of this other country, Theoden, he dies in this battle, and there's all this loss and all this bloodshed and all these negative consequences that you can't help but wonder if Gandalf had been there, then it might have gone differently. 
There was, a, there was a real consequence to him having to leave this situation to go deal with that situation. Um, the same thing is true. I'm sure you could think of dozens of examples in history where in you know, wartime, there's a, there's a mistake that happens and resources are having to be poured into this situation rather than deal with the main enemy. And that's what happens here. Paul could have been pouring his energy, pouring his time into other things. And there's been a real loss here. A real loss with this situation. Sin sets back the church. Um, he could have not dealt with it. That would have been wrong. Sometimes the church does that. But Paul um, had to deal with it. But there has been a pain. There has been hurt. There's been a situation that distracts from the message of the gospel. But back to, back to 2 Corinthians. So I've, I've kind of told you what we know. Um, but who is this person? There's a couple of different options. So it, he could be, and I actually kind of lean towards thinking he is. The person who was living with his father's wife, that was living with his stepmother in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There are some connections in the text between these two. If you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's okay if you don't, um, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that um, we're going to deliver his body over to Satan so that his soul may be saved. And I, I, that again, what that means is that he's, his body, he's physically removed from the church with the hope that he repents and comes back, right? That's what he's, he's saying. So there's a reference to Satan. Here, there's also a reference to Satan. Um, and the reference to Satan here is that there's a fear that this man's overwhelming sorrow and grief might, might be used by Satan as, his, as kind of his manipulation, his control of the situation. So I think what Paul could be saying is, yes, we've handed him over to Satan. He's repented don't let Satan have him, you know, like bring him back or show forgiveness, show, show comfort, restore this person. Um, so that's, that's very possible. And if it is this person, um, I, I think what likely happened is what I kind of outlined earlier is that this is a person who's somewhat prominent within the church. He's a person with power and money, and that's not an easy person, especially in a Greek Roman world. I mean, today, probably no issue, right? Um, I mean that sarcastically. Um, but this is a person of power and influence within the church, and the church was really slow to want to act against him. And he's like, hey, we don't have to listen to Paul. And so he comes after Paul, and Paul has to come and, and really lead. No, you have to do this. So I think that's quite possible. It is also possible that this is just a second person, and this is a person who um, re rejected Paul's authority. Perhaps he was listening to outside agitators, outside speakers, but I think it very well could be the same person, but we don't know for sure. But he is a person within the church that we can see. So although we don't know the details of this person's sin, it is likely a challenge to Paul's apostolic authority. And it's a challenge that precipitated, that brought on Paul's painful visit and his letter of tears, his painful visit and letter of tears. There's a long narrative that's been going on here. This isn't the first time this has been dealt with. So Paul is trying to put a wrap on what was a painful sequence of events. He's dealt with the issue. He was able to bring the Corinthians to obedience in this matter, and reconciliation has begun. And now he is ready to close the window on this, this chapter. I want to pick up in verse 6. So for such a one, again referring to the, the person who is offended in this manner, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm 
your love for him. So the, the punishment for this man's sinful behavior seems to have worked. There is, there is evidence of genuine sorrow over his sin and desire to be reconciled. We can see that. He, Paul's talking about an excessive sorrow. This comes with repentance. Repentance requires two things, right? Repentance requires like the prodigal son, recognizing that your sin is wrong, recognizing that you need forgiveness and then turning from your sin. And I think Paul sees evidence in this case that this person's really repented. He has sorrow at his sin. He's desiring reconciliation. And Paul's saying, it's time to close this chapter. Try to to bring this to um, reconciliation. Now, he talks about here the majority, the, the punishment of the majority. And there's a couple different ways of understanding this. But I think what's happening here is that the majority of the church is saying... He's, he's, done, he's paid his debt. He, he's, done his, he's, we, he's been punished, and it's time to restore him and forgive him. But that could mean that there's another kind of voice, and these might be the people who are most loyal to Paul, who are saying, no, he needs further punishment. So there's, this, there's perhaps this voice within the church is saying, no, it's not enough. And Paul's speaking into this conflict. He's saying, no, what the majority is saying, that it's time to restore him. That's enough. Time, there, there might be those who are saying that we need to see further dis- discipline, but Paul instruction, now it's time for restoration. He has seen enough to know that his repentance is genuine, that discipline has had its effect. Now, this passage is not about parenting. Um, this is a passage about church discipline. But I do think that there, there is some application here to parenting and perhaps other sorts of situations with discipline. Um, sometimes we as parents, myself included, I'm not a perfect parent. I've learned that very quickly in being a parent. But sometimes we as parents, we don't deal with situations when we should. Um, discipline is necessary, and you will reap the consequences of not disciplining your children very quickly if you, if you don't do it. But the point of discipline in church discipline and in parenting is always for the good of the person being disciplined is discipline is out of love. It's seeking to disciple that person. It's not seeking to punish. I, I, I do prefer to use the word discipline, to train rather than punish, like retribution. You did this, and now this is the consequence, and uh, that's the idea. But in Paul here, what he's saying is there's another side to it. So you've done the discipline at the front end, but now you need to comfort and reaffirm your love. I think that's important in parenting. You need to discipline your children. Your, your children um, sin, <laughs> and they need a, a heart that is willing to confront their sin and to discipline and to help them to see the consequences. But on the flip side, there also has to be this, this desire to comfort them and reaffirm your love for them on the back end of it. And I think that's what Paul is saying here in this context is, yes, there's discipline but care about the heart of this individual. The purpose of discipline is to restore this person, not to punish them. So it's been enough. Bring them back, comfort them, love them, show your care for this person. Um, and that's, I think that's what he's saying. So Paul's concerned that excessive discipline will lead this man to despair, coming from overwhelming grief. Biblical church discipline takes sin Seriously, And there are times, I'm not talking about Sunset Bible Church, I'm talking about the church at large, but there are times in which the church really doesn't take sin seriously enough to the, to the shame of the church and to the detriment of the reputation of Christ. There are times, particularly, 
particularly with people who are, have a lot of power in the church or have a lot of influence or have really big ministries, that when they, do, when they sin, that the church circles the wagons or they hide it or they, or they keep it down or they deny it. And it really does hurt the cause of Christ. It hurts the reputation of the church. It really does. And there are times in which the church doesn't take sin seriously enough. And I don't think that's what's happening here. They've, they've done church discipline. They've, done, they've um, removed him from church dis, uh, fellowship. But the goal, the goal is not to overwhelm the sinner with guilt, but to bring restoration and healing. And, and this is true for us as well. We should have grief at our sin. And we don't take sin seriously enough if we just dismiss our sin as if it's no big deal. That when we're confronted with our sin, when we see our sin, there should be a grief that comes with that. But God, God doesn't hang our sin over us forever. God doesn't just say, hey, you look at all these terrible things you did. You sinned, you sinned, you sinned. God restores us. The prodigal son story, once again, the father is waiting for his son to put on a robe, to have a party, not to tell him, hey, these are all the bad things that you did, and this is how you hurt me. The father is ready to restore him and to receive him. So there is a grief at our sin that's necessary. That's part of repentance. But I don't think God wants us to live in guilt forever that there's a receipt of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. So Paul's concerned that the sinner not be overwhelmed with grief. It's time for restoration and healing. On verse 9, Paul says, For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. I think what he simply means by this is this has been a difficult process the Corinthian church did not want to go through this process. They tried to avoid it. Paul had to take an extra visit to make it happen. And he's saying, this was a test for you. And whether you would really be faithful, of whether you would really be obedient. But we've passed the test. And again, this is part of moving on. So verse 10, though, Satan seeks to bring division. Satan seeks to bring division. Anyone whom you forgive, Paul says, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. I want to read from Matthew 18 here, because I actually think, and there's some connections in the text here, I think that Paul um, is aware of Jesus' teaching that is in Matthew 18. I think it's actually helpful for understanding this text at all. Um, also. So in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's, he's talking in anticipation of church dynamics and church discipline. And so um, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the whole church and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, that's very much what's happened in this context. This is somebody who has sinned, and his sin is not, he was not initially repentant, and he was confronted with that sin, and the person refused to repent, and Paul says, you have to remove him from the church, and he's an outsider. However, I want to keep going, uh, because I don't think that ends this idea. So continuing Matthew 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's still talking about church discipline. It's about, re about removing somebody from the community or receiving them back. Um, and again, I say to you, if two of you agree on anything 
about what anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And we often take this verse out of context. Um, and even when we take it out of context, it's actually still true what we say. But um, maybe you've, you've had a Bible study or, or something only three or four people show up. And like, oh, okay, well, well, two or three are gathered in my name still Jesus is there with them. By the way, that's true. Like we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. Jesus is there with us through his Spirit. That's true. But the context of that is actually in church discipline. It's the idea that Christ is present through this process where two or three of you agree. Remember, take one or two with you as witnesses. That's the same, that's flowing from the same context. Christ is present. So here, um, in this passage, Paul says, for your sake, in the presence of Christ, in the context of talking about church discipline, I think he is remembering the teaching of Jesus on this particular issue and mentioning it. But he's not done. Here's another verse that sometimes we take out of context. Um, In the context of church discipline, Peter comes up to him and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77. And so this is still flowing from this context, this passage. Now the time is for forgiveness. And he's calling on the church to forgive, to restore, to bring healing and reconciliation. So the church has the authority really what's going on in Matthew 18. The church has the authority given to her by Christ to enact church discipline and also to restore the repentant offender. And Jesus promised in this context to be present whenever two or three are gathered in his name. And Paul's statement that he has forgiven this individual in the presence of Christ reflects this promise, that Christ is with us um, in this. And then finally, verse 11, so that we will not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul's saying there is an enemy at work here too. There's an enemy at work here too. And I think that the enemy is at work in a couple of different ways. One, he's at work to divide the church and bring division. He's also at work to bring this individual to despair. It is not the voice of God. It's not the voice of God's spirit that tells you that your sin is too great to ever be forgiven. So this individual who's, who's, who Paul fears is leading to despair, who, to overwhelming grief. It's not the Spirit of God that tells you your sin is too much to be forgiven, too much to be restored. It's God who calls you to repentance. God who waits for you with open arms, again, thinking of the prodigal son. It's not the Spirit of God that seeks division among brothers within the church. That's the work of Satan. And Paul's saying you have to be aware of what he's seeking to do. And don't let him have this person. Um, Bring him back. Restore him. Care for this person's soul. Show your love for him. Reaffirm um, reaffirm him and restore him. So although the goal of the church in conflict should be restoration and healing, the goal of Satan is division and despair. Paul's worried that an overly harsh approach could open an opportunity for Satan to attack the unity of the church or the soul, the now repentant sinner. The church must avoid, not, must not allow conflict to be exploited by Satan. Before we move into the responding to God's word, I, I want to kind of take a step back and think about church discipline more on a large scale. So one of the questions that gets asked in this church and other churches like us is, well, why don't we do church discipline? Why don't we see that more often? And the short answer is that we do, actually, that most church discipline, again, thinking of Matthew 18, is done on a very small level. It would not be, hopefully, the norm that church discipline would reach the place where everybody knows about it. Because the goal is, again, to 
cause somebody to turn from their sin, it's done on a very personal, one-on-one, two-on-one, elders of the church kind of basis. So it ought not to be common that something would be come to the point where we're telling the whole church about it and, and forcing church discipline. That happens when somebody refuses to repent after many warnings and going through this process. It's not something you should see all the time. Another reason that you don't see it, frankly, is, is a culture that we live in where there are dozens, dozens of churches in our area. And oftentimes when a church starts going through church discipline issues, the person leaves and goes to another church and far too often causes the same issues at, at, at that other church. But we live in the Corinthian context. There's one church in Corinth. So removing them from the church is, is really something that has a bigger effect. In our culture, people just tend to go on to the next one and the next one. So it also is why you sometimes don't see it. But church discipline is not for the purpose of punishing. It's for the purpose of restoring. It's the it's, it's same as with ch- disciplining children. Um, the purpose is not just to punish someone. The purpose is to restore them, to help them to come to recognition of their sin and to feel the forgiveness and comfort that comes with restoration. Another thing I want to say, and this maybe you would call this um, biblical interpretation 201, um, right? But the, uh, a, an epistle, a letter, is what we would call an occasional document. And an occasional doc, what, it me- what that means is, is that Paul's addressing a specific situation. Okay? He's not necessarily trying to write a theology of church discipline in this passage that um, gives every single situation and every single application of it. He's talking about a specific situation in which somebody has been disciplined and that person has now been repentant and is now time to receive them back. Um, the reason I, I mention this, I, I think it's important that sometimes we take one passage that's part of a larger uh, doctrine and we can twist it, maybe for our own advantage. For instance, this would not be a proof passage for, let's say, a, a pastor or a spiritual leader who has been abusive in some sense of his position to say, well, you have to forgive me and restore me to my position. That's not what this passage is addressing, right? That, that might actually be a different kind of a situation. Or perhaps in an interpersonal kind of relationship where somebody um, maybe he says, well, you have to forgive me. Um, well, they're, they're, yeah, forgiveness is important, but sometimes there's a process to that forgiveness. So my, my point here is that when we think about church discipline, there's a, there's a larger context. There are many passages that speak into it. This is one of those passages, but you have to look at the whole scripture to interpret it. This is not one that's seeking to address every sort of situation. So it's specifically addressing a situation in which a member of the church has been removed. The process has happened. The person who has been removed is repentant and grieving over their sin. And now it's time to re- restore them. And that is, that's an important um, caveat to not see this as something that addresses every single situation necessarily. So for a theology of church discipline, you must look at the whole of Scripture, not just one of the parts. So responding to God's Word. One of the things I love about the way that we preach at Sunset Bible Church is that we preach expositorily, we preach exegetically, we move from passage to passage. We're preaching through 2 Corinthians. Um, If... I was just choosing the passage I was preaching this morning. I don't think I would pick 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. But we need the whole counsel of God 
God has given his, his word. He's given all of it to us for a reason. So this is a difficult issue. Church discipline is unpleasant. It's not something we want to talk about all the time, but it's often necessary. So often interpersonal conflict that is not dealt with well or at all can become a larger issue that affects the entire church. And we as the church all have a role to play. There's an interpersonal relationship. We all have a role to play in preventing the escalation of conflict and division. Remember, the goal would be that this doesn't come before the whole church very often. That there's, it's dealt with at a smaller level much more quickly. And the goal of discipline is the health of the Christian community. That's why Paul says you have to remove this person who is living with his stepmother. It is bringing shame to the whole church. And it's saying something about Christ and the gospel that's not true. So it's the health of the Christian community and also the health of the individual receiving the discipline. The goal is for their good. It's not to punish them or, or cause them pain. And we, as we, our response to sin must reflect the heart of Christ for sinners. And again, think of the Father's love for sinners. Think of Christ's love for sinners. Who Christ died for us so that we could be restored to right relationship with the Father. So the Christian and the Christian community ought not to take sin lightly. And often we do. And I don't mean us specifically here, but often the church does not take sin seriously enough, particularly when it's people with a lot of power and influence whose ministries are famous and who we, we don't want to, to lose our reputation that so often, very wrongfully, sinfully, I'm thinking of specific situations that I won't name, but very often we sin by not dealing with the sin when we ought to have and it blows up and it's even worse. So the Christian church should not take sin lightly, but neither should we take the gospel lightly. Neither should we take the gospel lightly. Um, Christ died to forgive sinners, including you and me. And Christ died to forgive sinners, and we ought to be forgiving because we've been forgiven. Um, we don't circle the wagons. We don't mistake that just ignoring the sin and it'll go away. No, the, the harm has already been done. We have to deal with it. But we also have to take the gospel seriously, that Christ died to forgive sinners, even the really big ones, um, like you and me. So church discipline is for those who don't repent. This is not what you do to somebody who's struggling and seeking to get better and needs help. Is you go, oh, kick them out of the church. They're a sinner. No, this is for those who don't repent, who don't respond to correction. And so sometimes evidence of repentance takes time, but when repentance has been seen, when grief of, of grief and sorrow at one sin has been seen, um, then there is these principles that apply here to respond, to return, to bring the person back, just like the prodigal son. The father waits with open arms, and we ought to have a posture of being ready to forgive those who repent. I'd love to pray for us as we prepare to receive communion. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a guide to us. Um, Father, there are passages in your word that help us to pray. There are passages in your word that help us to rejoice and to praise you. There are passages in your word that help us to understand the gospel and who Jesus is. And there are passages in your word that guide the way that we conduct ourselves as Christ's body. Uh, so Father, I thank you for all of it. I thank you for the guidance in your word here. But Father, we come before you as, as sinners, but not, not positionally. We come before you as those who have sinned and wandered, but we also come before you as those who you have brought back and you took the initiative um, for reconciliation. You sent your son to die for us so that we could have new life, so that we could be forgiven. 
and that you didn't leave him in the grave, but you raised him up and that you've raised us up. And we look forward to our final resurrection and the new heavens and new earth that you've promised. So Father, I thank you for the gospel and I thank you for our applies in difficult situations as well as in our everyday lives. Um, Father, I pray that your people will be encouraged as we remember what Christ has done for us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The night that, that Jesus was betrayed, um, before his, his arrest, he had a last supper with his disciples as he celebrated Passover. And um, Jesus took, took the bread and he said that this is his body. Um, and this is a kind of an interesting concept of Jesus' body being the bread. Jesus had said earlier, recording the Gospel of John, that he is the bread of life, which was reminiscent of the manna that came down to provide for the Israelites day by day their sustenance. And so Jesus' body given for us is our life, is our sustenance. We, bread in, in, in Jesus' context was a staple. So what you ate every day is what you needed to survive. And Jesus died for our life. So this, this cracker, this bread represents Jesus' body given for you. We'll take this in remembrance of him. Jesus also took the cup and the cup represents his blood. And it's a very visible symbol in that way. But wine is also a symbol in Jesus' context of celebration and of joy. And it's interesting to think of the, the wine as representing his, his blood. But the, the Jews in Jesus' context, the Jewish people in Jesus' context, looked forward to a day of, of feasting and celebration with the Messiah. Um, and remember in our prodigal son. The father receives um, the son with a feast. So the, the bread and the, the wine represents Jesus' body and blood, but it also represents our life and our joy and the fact that we can rejoice. We have restored uh, a restored relationship with the father. So Jesus' blood is our joy. This, this, this cup represents Jesus' blood shed for you. We also do this in remembrance of him. I would love to pray for us as we go out. Would you please stand with me? Father, I thank you for your people called together to be your own. Um, Father, and we are all those who wandered far from you. But because of the, the sacrifice of your son that we remembered this morning, we have been brought near. That we approach you not as sinners. We approach you as sons and daughters forgiven. Um, Father, thank you for this reminder of, of Jesus' death for us. Father, thank you that you did not leave him in the grave, but raised him from the dead, and that we too will be raised uh, when, you return, when he returns. And we pray in Jesus' name and the power of the Spirit. Amen. And God bless you as you go, and we'll see you again very soon.